Uh, so normally it's not speaking. Normally it would be Dustin, the guy that briefly came up here earlier. Um, but that's just something I want to celebrate tonight, that we're not building and be similar like with HCC. Um, we're not building our ministry on people. We're building it on God's Word. Um, so anybody that's going to speak the truth uh, from Scripture, is, you know, we're happy to have them here. Um, and so just want to share a cool experience with you all. Uh, this past summer, I got the opportunity to go to Uganda um, and work with South Sudanese refugees. And so actually the last time that I spoke, I was in a bamboo hut with about 200 South Sudanese refugees on a red clay floor and just getting to worship with these people. And it's just super encouraging because um, we just see that God's word is not bound. It's not bound by language. It's not bound by culture. Um, and so, you know, if you're here tonight and this isn't something you normally do, you're kind of out of your element, like God's word still applies to you and it applies to us. And we're so thankful to have you. Um, I want to do a little confession. Uh, this text has really hit me hard. Um, for I've known that I was going to speak for probably close to two months now. And the past month and a half, I've just been feeling the weight of being unworthy to share God's word. And every time I mess up, every you know, mistake that I make, um, just feeling the weight that somehow I have believed this lie that I have to attain some level of righteousness uh, that will make me feel good about myself so that I can get up here and teach. Um, and God has just torn that down in my studying of this text that I will never achieve um, my own confidence. The only confidence that I'll ever be able to truly stand on and be grounded in and anchored in through life is going to be Christ's finished work. And that is shown through his mark on our life. But that mark on our life is never in itself meant to be our confidence before God. And so I'm excited to get into that this week. I'm really pumped just to, just to share that and, and show you how God's used it so powerfully in my life. Uh, quickly, I want to recap last week. Um, we're in the same chapter of John, but this is the second half of 1 John chapter 3. Um, and I'll actually be starting, we ended last week on verse 10, and I'll be starting this week on verse 10 because it's just really a transitional verse. And last week we saw... Um, Dustin just did a great job bringing forward that the real love of God brings real change in our lives. And if there is no evidence of Christ in our lives, we should ask ourselves if we have truly tasted the love of God. So 1 John 3, 10 is where we'll start. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. <clears throat> Jesus is asked by the Pharisees earlier in um, his ministry, what, what is the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. In the first part of John chapter 3 last week, John was really honed in on the righteousness of God and how that will mark our lives if we haven't truly experienced Christ. Love the Lord thy God. And our love of God is displayed in our obeying God. Not, not because we have to obey God, but because we have experienced that His way is better than our way. 
And we experience little glimpses of God in our obedience, and we love him for who he is. And this week, we're going to see John hone in on what Jesus called the second greatest commandment of loving your neighbor. And here, John is really going to focus us in on loving our brother in the sense of the family of the faith. But the application is the same, that we love out of Christ's love for us. So to preview the text, to just tell you where we're going with this, where John's going to walk us through. Uh, John is going to show us the world's view of people, how we naturally view ourselves and others without Christ. Then he's going to make it personal. He's going to tie it to something that we can all relate to, the emotion of anger. And he will show us how something that seems so normal can reveal evil that is so deep in our hearts. Then we will see the perfect example of love. We'll see Jesus and how that should play out in our lives. Finally, we will see how Jesus is greater than our failures and how he frees us from condemnation and empowers us to supernatural confidence that leads to supernatural love. Uh, There's just so much in the text. It's a big section that I really can't cover it all. But we're going to focus on the big idea that John is running through. And... I have an illustration that I just kind of want to run through the message as kind of a, a theme or a ribbon. Um, and it's just, just the idea of a fountain, a water fountain. If you, if you think about a standard fountain, it's um, got a basin and it's overflowing with water. So, but it's so mesmerizing because no matter how much water flows out of it, it recycles and it keeps flowing. And and that's really how God created us to be in a relationship with him. And John is going to take us all the way back to the beginning with Cain and Abel. And he is going to show us how he created us to be filled with joy from in who he designed us to be. And how sin has broken us like as if we were a broken fountain and the water flows out and there's no more to come up. So let's get into it. First John three. Verse eleven. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's going to be really important for us to have a good definition of what love is and what hate is. Um, Our culture wants to define love as this agreeable spirit that's non-confrontational, that affirms people in whatever they feel like doing, regardless of any possible compliment consequences they want to say you know you never tell no you never tell someone no to what they want to do you you affirm what they feel like doing because you can't change your feelings you build their confidence in who they are and never say anything that might be challenging for them to hear Uh, the bible is going to define love very differently than that for us we'll see love is about sacrifice and serving for the good of others In a couple verses, John will lay out what love is very clearly. But for now, we will highlight that loving is about serving that other person. Even if it has something difficult like sacrificing your own values or comforts. So hate 
would be defined in our culture as the opposite of their definition of love. The world would define hate as not agreeing with their views. It takes away from their perceived rights. It is it's something that constricts them and confines them for what they think freedom is. And it goes against what they feel like is good. Uh, we see this all the time. If you speak up in class against sensitive topics, even if you do it in a kind and gentle way, you're a bigot. You're closed-minded. Uh, you're far too conservative for them. But hate in the Bible, much differently than defined in the world, but similarly, it is the opposite of the way the Bible defines love, would be instead of serving people from your resources and in your interactions, it's, it is based on taking from them. It, would, it could be literally physical needs. You could literally be stealing from them. It could be emotional things that you're trying to find your joy in the other person and that they are living for you. So why is this hate? Because it's a, it's a parasitic way of life. You're trying to gain life and joy by taking from their pool of joy. And that flies in the face of the beauty of the gospel. We have been called to love. So John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And John refers right back to this in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John is going to point us to what we are accountable to. He's going to show us the standard and the command that God has placed on our lives so that we can, he can draw a contrast between what we're supposed to look like and what we're not supposed to look like. And he's going to take us all the way back to the beginning, to Cain and Abel, verse 12 and 13. He says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do you, do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Uh, you know, they came, they were some of the first children ever born in the world. Um, and, and God called the people after sin entered the world to present sacrifices to him. And, and God set up a structure for how that would be done. And then Abel brought a sacrifice to God and it was a godly sacrifice. And Cain brought a sacrifice to God. But, but Cain wanted to do it his own way. He wanted to do it well and he, he wanted to um, sacrifice what he had. And it was a sacrifice for him, but... He chose to do it the way that he wanted to do it and not the way that God called him to do it. And so his sacrifice was unacceptable. And so we see Cain's motivation that his brother obeyed the standard. His sacrifice was acceptable before God. And Cain, in comparing himself to his brother, saw how he fell short of what he was supposed to be. And from that, he murdered his brother. And those are going to be the motivations of the world around us. And this is why John is trying to tell us, don't be surprised that the world hates you. When they look at you and you reflect Christ in any way, they see a standard that they're not meeting. And they have to self-reflect and ask, what's going on with me? What's wrong? John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Our righteous living leads to unrighteous recognition in others' hearts. And this is a critical point that if, if we are living like Christ, we are going to make people mad. They see their wrong through our righteous living. Uh, but there's a huge caution I want to put out. Um, we can be arrogant and use the gospel like a battering ram. You know, it says Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that we were condemned already. But so often we want to step on this high stool of uh, obedience and self-righteousness and look down our noses at others. Uh, it can be simple things like you know, driving down, say, frat row and just, just getting all these self-righteous ideas and notions in your mind about who you are and what you agree with and and it can be wrongly based, and we have to be cautious in this area and really need to assess why have we upset them. Is it, is it because they feel the condemnation that is already on them, or is it because we are being ungracious? We have to present the story of Jesus in both a true and gracious way, where we see the person as both sinner, wrong, and sufferer, that sin has a hold of them like it does often in our lives as we struggle. But don't just think that because you made someone angry with your living or with the gospel that, that you were wrong. John is going to nail this away for us that we cannot be surprised when the world hates us. You may have shown them nothing like love, just like Jesus. But they felt conviction and got angry and, and desired to take away the standard, much like Cain did with Abel. When people that you're able to see that you're able to live in a life-giving way as a broken fountain, instead of a life-taking way, it causes them to self-inspect and think. You know, like, like a fountain that has cracks in it. How, how could it possibly have water continue to come out of it? Uh, and we see this play out in our lives. I wanted to use a short example uh, with my wife. She's a nurse in the emergency department in Ashland. And she'll get patients often that other nurses consider... Um, Waste of life uh, for various reasons. And when they see her trying to love on them, trying to be compassionate to them, they make comments like, oh, Taylor, you're just so compassionate because you're naive. Or it's just because you're young and not hardened yet. If you think about that, it's a pretty offensive uh, claim to make of someone. Uh, you wouldn't normally just walk up to someone and say that they're naive. But why do they make statements like that it's because they see the standard of life. They see um, what we have been called to do, how we've been called to love, and it brings condemnation on them and feel the need to excuse themselves. In 14 and 15, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If we do not love, then we abide in death. And anyone who does not love hates 
and anyone who hates is a murderer, and eternal life does not abide in him. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 equates being wrongfully angry with your brother with murder. And he says that they have a similar outcome. Does this convict you? Do you see how often you fail at, at loving your neighbor, at loving your brother and the sisters in Christ? Does, it, does the weight press on you when you see in verse 15 that you say, when John says, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him? Does that hit you? This, just like Cain, is what cries out against us. As Cain murdered Abel, um, in Genesis we see that the blood of Abel cried out against him. And this is what cries out against you. How often do you just get so angry? You know, road rage grabs a hold of you because someone dared inconvenience your driving. Someone said something that hurt you and you snap back. Someone ditched you and your plans have changed because they fell through on you. And you're just angry. You're breaking the second greatest commandment and it cries out against you. John is hitting us with this. And it should cause some healthy self-reflection. There's a marked difference between those who are in Christ and those who are of the world. And we are going to come back to this, but because John is calling us out and, and humbling us and hitting us with this in a way that causes us to self-reflect for a reason. In verse 16, we see, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. I want to like just reflect on the beauty of the structure even of those verses. That each time there's a call to obey a command, we see the example of Jesus. Last week was a call to righteous living based out of a real love for our righteous God and experiencing Him through obedience. This week we see the call is to living out love based on the enabling love of Jesus. And here's our definition of love. Jesus, lay down our lives. Do you remember what Jesus did for us? He, he lived a perfect life. He loved people perfectly. At each turn of his life, he laid it down, not just at the cross, but throughout his entire life. He, the king of the universe, was born in a barn with cattle. He, the almighty, washed his disciples' feet. He, the perfect one, ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. Then he willingly accepted torture and separation from God so that you may live. His body literally in every sense in place of yours. You want to see love? Look at the cross. You want to show love? Look at the cross. You want to know love? You want to live love? Look at the cross. It's where John's pointing us for a reason. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
If this is our definition of love, then this is the standard of love that John is calling us to. Are we loving, especially to our brothers in Christ like this? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We see the cross and this is how we live. When the gospel hits our hearts, it fundamentally changes something. And this is the call to live life with open hands. When we see Jesus' love for us, and when we accept that that love, he fills our needs And somehow a broken fountain overflows with joy and life in this broken world. And we are able to see the world appropriately. We never again have to try to hold on to it. The world sees a broken fountain and says, you need this or you need that. And able to fill those holes that you have in your life. And when we are okay with life's trials and and circumstances and and when we are able to continue in joy, they cannot understand it. It is through our loving that we are able to give things to those in need. We no longer have to hold on to it with clenched fists and fight for it because we are already full. Whatever is in our hands is just an extension of the fullness that is inside of us. If you're here and you aren't able to love others, if, if you can't let go of things, if you can't let go of your comforts, if you can't let go of your safeties to help those in need, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to ask yourself, am I filled with the love of Christ? Is he real to me? This is what John is calling us to. Can you have true life in you and yet hold on to dust? And I don't want to miss the missional call either. Um, It's subtle. But there are people all over the world who need the gospel. And you have the ability to go and we have been called to go. Whether we are here or overseas, let us not hold on to the gospel to keep a hold of our comfort. Let us live openly with things and our comforts, absolutely. But above all else, let us live openly with the gospel. That's why we have this month of going, to focus in on that. Jesus came from heaven to here, and it certainly was not safe, and it certainly did not come without extraordinary costs. But he went for the joy that was set before him. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Our call to love is in deed and truth. Talk is cheap. It's easy to just say to someone, let me pray for you. And not actually pray for them and not actually be a part of God's means that he works in people's lives. We aren't here to be some holy huddle that is just with the in crowd of nice people that make me feel good. We have a call to get in the trenches of life with people. We get in the mess. This is love as displayed by Christ. We must always also check how we serve indeed. Because it says indeed and truth. We can serve with bad motivations. 
This isn't a I scratch your back, you scratch my back lifestyle that we're called to. I don't help someone hoping that they get me back. I'm able to sacrifice out of the fullness that Christ has given me. And I want to specifically note, John is not saying we achieve our Christianity by this. That is an important distinction. If you are not a Christian, you are not able to love in this way. But if you are able to love in this way, it's because you are a Christian. By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. 19 through 24. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John is aiming to give us assurance of our salvation. Why would he need to give us assurance? The blood of Abel cries out against us. We have not loved perfectly. And we cannot love perfectly on this side of heaven. And verse 15 told us that the response of not loving perfectly is being separated from God. So John is calling out those who are not of God. And he is encouraging those that are of God but feel condemned by their sin. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Look at the connection here. If we, like in the previous verse, love indeed and truth, then we know that we are of the truth. We can know that we are of God. And like many other religions of the world who would basically say, hey, you do your best and you try your hardest and you hope you make it, but you really don't know for sure. John is trying to bang it in our heads that you can know that if God's mark is truly on your life, that you can know. But he's just spent time showing us what true love looks like and going back to 15, how we don't measure up. So how is it that we do know and find this confidence that he's talking about? He's going to tie it all in together for us. Verse 24, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John is relating to the Christians that feel the condemning weight of failure at love. Every day I fail at this, and every day I feel the conviction of how can I say that I love God and fail at loving my friends? How can I say that I want to live out the gospel and then treat the people that I engage with every day so selfishly? And I feel so disabled from ministry and and from love and, and feeling real with people by these realities of who I am. But God, John has wrecked me with this truth that he wants all of us to get a hold of here. 
John is going to draw out the distinction of between conviction and condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whenever we feel the weight of sin, whenever we see how broken we are, whenever we see and feel the blood of Abel crying out against us, the fact that our sin condemns us, where can we rest? How can we be confident when Jesus is the standard? We find our confidence not in completing what Jesus has done, but in Jesus completing the standard for us. God is greater than our heart and he knows it all. He knows what we have done and what we will do. And Jesus is the payment. The blood of Jesus cries out louder than the blood of Abel. And if we are not condemned because of the redemption by Christ, then Romans 8.1 is true of us. There is no condemnation for us. And if that is true of us, then we may have confidence before God when we feel conviction that it is not condemnation, but in fact it is a call to return to the way of Christ. We don't run away from God in fear of condemnation. We run to God in confidence because of the cross. This is why I said when you want to live out love, you look to the cross. You don't look to a laundry list of as I was trying to do, a laundry list of righteous deeds that I can feel worthy to stand here. And you'll never make a list big enough to feel worthy to stand before God. Do you feel disabled by sin in your life? Do you feel hypocritical? If your confidence is in yourself, that is true. But if your confidence is in the cross, you're freed to life. You're free to do ministry and you're freed from condemnation. So you are enabled to love. It's Christ that's filling your fountain. And I want to I hit on a, a touchy and huge sin here that often disables people from ministry for this reason. John Piper quotes a study that followed up with people who used to be very active in ministry and no longer are. And it asks what stopped them. And the overwhelming majority said that they stopped ministry because of sins that they felt too ashamed of. And primarily those sins were sexual sins, specifically pornography. Uh, A lot of churches are going to shy away from topics like this uh, because it's difficult. It's hard. It's messy. But we're called into the trenches of life with each other. Um, and I, I know that I've spoken with some of you. I've met with some of you. I, I know that some of you are being crushed by this sin. And you feel so unworthy to approach God. You probably often question if you can come to something like this or get more involved because there's this secret side of you that no one knows about and you're defeated. But look here. Look to these verses Christ is greater than your sin and God knows it all and he's calling you to redemption. Don't look at your sin and say it's too bad. I can't approach God. When you do that, you're believing a lie, much like I was in viewing this time. You're believing that your sin is greater than the sacrifice of Jesus and that Romans 8.1 doesn't apply to you, that you're somehow an exception to his word. 
And sometimes, I don't want to miss anyone here, sometimes we pretend like that is just a guy's struggle. But it's not. If you're a female and you're struggling with this, don't think that you're alone either. And for anyone, there's healing in any sin in Christ. And if you're stuck in that and you want to be free, come talk to me after. Come talk to any of the serve team after. And we'd love to get involved in your life and we'd love to walk through that with you. We are struggling too. We have been there and you're not on your own. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. When we're living out this type of love, living His call to love Him and others, we are brought to a humble position that guides our hearts to trust Him and to ask for His will to be done. This isn't saying that we just pray we you know, win the lottery and we get it. We don't, we don't pray if we're in that position where we see this reality of what Christ has done for us and the reality of who we are. We don't pray for our will to be done, but we align our will with His and He supplies everything we need to do whatever He calls us to. Why do you think that He ties this confidence into prayer here? Uh, when, when you pray, you are approaching God and speaking with Him. It's a big deal. And have you, have you ever, right after sin, just feeling the weight of it, tried to pray, tried to approach God, and you just think, I'm so unworthy. I, how can I pray after what I just did? Just feel defeated. And you would be right to feel defeated. You would be. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross But because Jesus died and intercedes for you, you are able to approach God and ask Him for whatever you need to do His will. When you grasp that, you don't arrogantly approach God in prayer and demand your will. You approach Him and ask for wisdom and and for Him to supply what He needs for His will to be done in us. I would love to just dive into prayer here and, and how Christ frees us to do that, but We simply don't have time. Um, But let me say, if you just struggle with constant feelings of condemnation and unworthiness, commit these verses to memory. Spend time here because it will free you. And there's kind of this tough end on that verse that if we take out of context can seem legalistic because we keep His commandments. Uh, it, can, it can seem like the weight of that is on us and not on Christ, but that's the importance of context and, and keeping in with the text. So let's look at how we keep his commandments and remember everything that we just read that, and how God is greater than our failures. 23 and 24. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. His abiding in us enables us through his spirit to keep his commandments. And by keeping his commandments, we are confirmed that he abides in us. 
There's kind of a circular pattern here of action that yields this unshakable confidence for us. He gives us his spirit through the work of Jesus who works in us so that we may believe and obey. (coughs) And through our believing and obeying, he confirms his mark on our lives with this incredible miracle of us broken people being able to love other broken people. So for the non-believer, if you don't know Christ, your failures to love others condemns you. Verse 15 is true of you, that if you hate your brother, eternal life does not abide in you. The blood of Abel cries out against you like it did Cain, and you are condemned by your works. For the believer, you know Christ. Your failure to love others would condemn you, but Jesus' blood cries out over you. He has paid for you and he frees you to love others. Walk in confidence in his finished work, freeing you from your failures. And every successful moment of loving others, see that it is him working in you. If the band will come up, I've got one short story. I'm going to tie it in and I'll be done. Uh, I had the awesome privilege of going to South Africa on a mission trip a few years back. And it was about six weeks long. At the end of it, um, we got to go on a safari, but this was no Disney Epcot safari. This was pretty legit. And at one point, I actually ended up on the outside of our safari vehicle, but that's a different story for a different time. Um, But as we were in this picturesque moment, we crested this hill and began to come down, and we we see this pride of lions. I think there's 12 or maybe 14 lines. And uh, we get maybe 150, 200 feet from them and just park the car. And uh, the driver's warning us of how far we need to stay from them. And all of a sudden, this massive line just stands and roars. And from 150 feet away, I kid you now, my chest was rattling. And one day you will approach the throne of God for judgment and you will stand condemned and the devil will look to God and he will say look at 1 John 3 verse 15 eternal life can't abide in him he did not love perfectly and if you're not a believer God will say depart from me I never knew you and forever you'll be separated from God but if you're a believer God will look to his right And Jesus, the Lion of Judah, will rise and he will step over you and roar with a roar that crushes the chest of demons and sends them scurrying for all eternity as he cries out, my blood covers him.